we are looking at, at basically what animals categories they have higher inflammation uh, you know an, an average population the the average the Average inflammation of the population is higher compared to other animal categories, and and try to selectively uh, target that population of animals and do preventative or prophylactic anti-inflammatory management in those animals, um, and 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 that has shown positive effect, and and we are working a, a number of manuscript well as hoping to hit, have those out by the end of the year, um, where we. Select these what I like to call high priority cow groups uh, based on their physiology during, uh, inflammation wise during the transition period. And we have seen that this population of animals consistently in all the studies that we have done, they have high inflammation. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function. Fibro Animal Health Corporation, healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Adiseo USA, producers of SmartMime M and MilkPay.com. Bergen Schmidt, your partner for improving animal performance. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. When your goal is to help animals reach their full potential, health matters. Diamond V offers a fresh perspective on animal health, a perspective that supports gut health, strengthens immunity, and ultimately enhances performance. For those who choose to invest in keeping healthy animals healthy, Feeding Diamond V makes a statement about another dimension of profit, where margins are measured by confidence in your future. To get a fresh perspective, visit diamondv.com, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. I'm your host, Gail Carpenter. I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist at Iowa State University. I'm joined today, I should have double-checked how to pronounce your name before we started recording, but uh, by Dr. Adrian Berrigan. Is that, am I saying that right? That's really good, yeah. Good pronunciation. Do you mind if I call you Adrian today? No, please do so. All right. Uh, well, we're joined today by Adrian Berrigan, who is a... Um, clinical assistant professor at Penn State University. So, Adrian, what I normally do is I normally um, stalk somebody's LinkedIn page beforehand, get a little bit of background on them, and then ask you questions. But your LinkedIn is pretty uh, pretty bare. I'm <laughs> not no, too. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, why? Well, usually, I'm, I'm, I usually have all my information on the website uh, of the university. Uh, LinkedIn uh, is something that I, I had out there, but I really haven't had time to actually, you know, spend the the um, the time updating that currently. And actually, I'm, uh, I was promoted a couple of months ago, so now I'm an associate research professor. So oh. even that is not accurate. So. Okay. Well, congratulations on the on the promotion and the new job title. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. So do you want to uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about your background? Where are you from? Where'd you go to school? What do you 
What brought you to Penn State? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, well, as, as many of you may know uh, already, because I, I work with, with quite a few of you, I definitely collaborate, uh, not collaborate, but, um, you know, talk with Barry, uh, Dr. Bradford, uh, many of uh, the research that we do linked, uh, they're really similar, even your study, Gail, on, uh, you know, anti-inflammatory management, uh, uh, those are sort of the lanes that, that will work. But anyhow, I'm, I'm not from around, uh, that is where the strong accent came from. I'm originally from Argentina. Uh, my native um, language is Spanish, so hablo español muy bien. Um, and and um, I, I went to bed school there. Um, I was about six hour, I, uh, six years and a, and a half of uh, DBM degree study. I finished my studies in 2010. Uh, after I graduated, I um, practiced in uh, beef cattle operations. So I was the um, main veterinarian for a 13,000 head operation and a 16,000 head, two different fillets. Um, and myself and a colleague, they were the two veterinarians in charge of that. And I did that work for about a year and a half, almost two years. And after that, I um, an, an opportunity came, which I couldn't let pass. Uh, and uh, there was um, a former professor of mine from the, the college, uh, University of La Plata College of Veterinary Medicine. Uh, he was doing a, a research study in Colorado State. Uh, in a large organic farm, uh, organic farm, um, five thousand uh, milking cows uh, back then. Now they definitely expand quite a bit. In collaboration with uh, Professor Dr. Gustavo Schunemann, uh, many of you might know, from the Ohio State University. Uh, so anyhow, um, the opportunity came along. They need uh, an extra bet to help with the field data collection and, and actually uh, treatment uh, administration and, and sample collection and so on. Um, so I, I came to the States back in 2012. Um, I did an internship of about, oh, it was a full year, it was 12 months. Um, and after that, Dr. Schunemann offered me a graduate student position. Uh, so I moved from Colorado to Ohio State University. Um, and I did the master. And as you know, after the master comes the PhD. Uh, so I did master and PhD at Ohio State University. Um, and back in 2017, I finished my uh, PhD program in July, uh, in July. And in August, I started uh, up here in Pennsylvania. Uh, in my current position as um, back then was uh, assistant clinical professor and now it uh, was modified, well, the promotion associate, but now I'm more in the research uh, professor um, area. All right, very good. So I guess that's a good transition to what have you been working on? Um, yeah, I mean, so the main uh, research that, that we do in the lab is um, related to uh, the management, uh, now I like to, uh, I used to call it management, now I like to call it more modulation of uh, this, this new and uh, really uh, hot topic that you may say this uh, last uh, 10 years or so, the systemic inflammation, right? Uh, and, and how can we uh, modulate that inflammation in a specific group of animals to help those animals to cope better with uh, the different challenges or physiological challenges during transition period. Um, so I started this uh, line of research back with my PhD, uh, where we did like really similar studies to, to yours um, 
uh, Gail and, and Dr. Bradford, uh, where we actually did a, a treatment approach, a postpartum. In our case, we use acetyl salicylic acid, similar to the salicylates that you guys have used. Um, but she's trying to find uh, more applied uh, practices, right? Uh, at the beginning, back in my PhD, we really focused on, okay, let's follow the pharmacodynamics of, of the salicylate and make sure that we, we have constant, you know, the concentration is always about the therapeutic threshold. Uh, and then, you know, we went back and said, wait a minute, there's no producing in, a producer in Earth that's going to be able to apply this, right? Too labor-intensive, too uh, much, uh, you know, uh, work involved, and even with the timing. So when I when I started my position here, I said, okay, let's try to come up with something that we still have positive effects, but is actually usable for the industry, right? Um, and that's when we came out with with this um, uh, um, uh, research study that we published back in 20, uh, 2020, it was uh, three papers that, that went out there, um, where we actually did two doses, uh, one um, at within the first 12 hours after cabin and another one uh, 24 hours later. So two treatments, uh, you know, not really, and we do the AM, PM sort of uh, treatment approach. So it was really uh, applicable for, for the producer and, and we obtained really similar results. So um, with that being said, sort of the research has evolved now into more of what animals actually need this treatment, right? Uh, in the past, as I, even, you know, your research, Gail, we used to say, okay, let's do a blanket therapy treatment, right? Let's, let's treat all the animals, right? Um, and now, even in our studies, we're seeing that some animals actually uh, they, they negatively they're negatively affected by this treatment. They don't need it, right? So, how can we identify those animals that need a treatment and and treat those animals, um, but do not, you know, give the other animals what they don't need on top of the extra stress from uh, restraining the animals and the handling and yada yada all the the, the extra labor, right? Well, I think I I play devil's advocate with myself sometimes on this because, like you said, like we kind of did some pretty similar. Barry and I did some pretty similar work when I was working on my PhD there, and it's so I think you know when I was younger and and more optimistic about <laughs> about things, you know, we kind of saw this as like, yeah, you're gonna give a blanket treatment to animals, you're gonna, um, you know, every every fresh cow get a meloxicam or, or sodium salicylate, acetyl salicylate, whatever it happened, whatever anti-inflammatory that we're studying, and I think so. That was um, 2015 is when I finished my PhD, and even in the past uh, eight years or so, I think we've really seen a shift in transition cow management where it's a lot more hands-off right and so i think we're starting to see a shift on to uh, where we're decreasing the number of touches that cows get right and wondering if we're actually going to cause more problems in the long run if we the more we handle these cows and and like you said like some of these cows actually have a negative effect and we're adding additional stress on them by doing these extra treatments and so that really i think my perspective on that has kind of shifted a bit also over the past few years about, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's not going to be this, this all of a sudden we've cured it. Right. Like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
so what are your what are your theories? What do you think what do you think we need to be looking for in the cows that are going to be our our problem cows? Yeah, and and you know that that is 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 a good question, and and ideally, what we need is, is we need a calcite test that that like the one that we had the VHP, right? So we need something that gotta ha- allow us to to identify high inflammation in the cows. But our, my lab, uh, I will say our lab because it's a it's a lot of people collaborating. Um, we are looking at at basically what animals categories. They have high inflammation, uh, you know, an, an average population, the, the, aver- the average inflammation of the population is higher compared to other animal categories and, and try to selectively uh, target that population of animals and do preventative or prophylactic anti-inflammatory management in those animals. Um, and, and, and that has shown positive effect and, and we are working a, a number of manuscripts well hoping to hit, have those out by the end of the year um, where we select these what I like to call high priority cow groups um, based on their physiology inflammation wise during the transition period and we have seen that this population of animals consistently in all the studies that we have done they have high inflammation uh, and those are going to be our primipers cows, which are heifers before a calving, right? Heifers, primipers, uh, or nulipers, you know, primipers, dash primipers cows after calving. Uh, over-conditioned cows, uh, now we have some, some really nice data uh, where uh, we measure inflammation pre-part in those animals. And uh, the animals that have more than 3.75, equal or more than 3.75 uh, points of body condition score, they have a high inflammation compared to animals that are in the optimal, which is uh, 2.75 to 3.5. Um, and and um, and then the other thing that we have seen a uh, high inflammation have seen is in animals that have histocytic calving, right? Um, and those those categories work really fairly good for uh, the postpartum approaches. Um, but one new line of research that we we are investigating now, and we we were. Um, um, uh, lucky enough to, to be funded by a, a, a large award uh, from NIF uh, a couple of years ago, where we are investigating the prepartum anti-inflammatory uh, treatment on, on, on these high priority cow groups. Um, and, and we definitely seen uh, really interesting associations, uh, I'll put it in that way, with these categories where the, where the treatment benefits uh, you know, over-conditioned animals or, or nulipers animals, but in some cases have negative effect in some outcome variables. Uh, I'll give one example of milk production, for instance. Animals, multiples animals, for instance, they have a negative effect when we treat them pre-partum. So, so yeah, it's, it's still a lot of information or, or <coughs> excuse me, a lot of, um, um, how will say, what I want to say, a lot of things that we still need to uncover and 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 look for these, uh, you know, intricate associations because the other factors we want to make sure there's not a confounding effect by uh, is is uh, one thing that we have seen in in uh, the farms that we do study that and any sort of a nation uh, wide trend is some primitive cows are usually over conditioned, right? No matter what farm you go, uh, you're going to have a high percentage of those primitive cows being over-conditioned, right? So now, you know, trying to remove that the noise and, and single out each category uh, is is uh, something that we're, we're trying to, 
to um, to get better and and having more uh, you know meaningful results on those. But but really interesting association. We presented some of those in the uh, ADSA um, uh, meeting this year. Um, but but yeah. So now is 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 that and and uh, we are sort of going a, a step ahead. Or, I don't know if it's a step ahead, but but trying to to find more more applicability <clears throat> or higher implementation uh, of this approach. And one thing that we want to look if is there any farm records that we can look at that I will know that an animal that has these, um, for instance, high somatosol counts a dry off, right? Would that animal have high inflammation? An animal have lower? Would an animal that is lame <clears throat> during the dry period? Will have high inflammation in animals that do not. You know, so now we're starting to look at what are the records that we regularly, the producer regularly collect that could be associated with high inflammation, right? Uh, and I think that, you know, when you think about the applicability and the uh, usefulness or utilization of, of these types of approaches for the industry, is when it might have more meaningfulness uh, on that, you know, when, when we actually can tell, okay, these are the animals that need it, these animals that's not, right? I'm glad you brought up farm records because that kind of leads into another question that I had for you. As you're, as you're identifying these high-risk cows that may need the intervention, um, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, you go out to do your fresh cow checks or your chore list, like you're printing off a chore list off PC Dart or Dairy Comp or whatever your software happens to be, and those are, you know, based on uh, milk deviation or days of milk or whatever, it, whatever it happens to be that you have set up. Um, but you know, producers, most producers aren't recording, um, body condition score, at least not in their software. Right. And I know, like, I'm sure you're familiar with all of the, all of the, uh, logistical challenges that come with farm records and, and looking at different, uh, you know, from one farm to the next, uh, and from one person entering data to the next, how much variation there can be. And so like, where do you envision, this going. So you're, we're doing this research to kind of identify like, yes, these are the cows that need the intervention, but ultimately what's that going to look like on the producer side, on the, on the practical applied side when it comes to making some of those chore lists? Right. No, that, that's a great question, Gail. And that is a challenge that we have had in the industry for, you know, decades. Uh, you know, how we can uh, homogenize the data and sort of uh, you know, just have as every single farm has similar records. Uh, that that's one, right? Because even even when you think about this um, large study where we obtained data from many uh, farms, and and even the health records, each you know the the the, uh, the categorization that they use, they are different, right? Uh, but on top of that, you add the human error, as you said, and that's just making sure that that information is is accurate. And, and yeah, that's a challenge that is, is hard to overcome, right? Um, I think that our focus is to find um, really, um, you know, I think that the, this data that is less, they're, they're more strict uh, because that data can get you, for instance, you know, and this is just one example, not that we're going to be using it for, for assessing inflammation, but for instance, um, medication uh, withdrawal time, right? That that they have to be sure that that or it's more strict, right? So there is a more scrutiny on that data. So there are some records that they're related to more economical decisions that also they are more scrutiny, like the somatosol count, the milk production, all those those data. Uh, so the goal is to identify, 
you know, if those records that have a higher accuracy, accuracy if, if you might say, they're associated um, with, with high inflammation, right? And if we can identify cutoff to um, select population of high risk for inflammation and population that, you know, is good, that they don't need treatment. Um, and with that being said, the, the body condition score, I, I agree 100%. I, uh, since, I, since I have been working with extension, it's probably, uh, you know, back when I was with, uh, with Gustavo in Ohio State University, uh, I have been trying to, to train and educate uh, producers and employees to record body condition score, but it still is such a, you know, uncommon uh, practice, although there's so much data, so much knowledge now that they, they uh, you know, have shown the, the, uh, the importance uh, of monitoring body condition score and body condition score loss during the transition period. But one thing, the positive thing in the horizon is that these cameras that actually do this automatically, they are becoming fairly accurate. Uh, and, you know, I seen, I'm, I'm seeing more and more farms, uh, proactive farms actually uh, utilizing, uh, um, purchasing and utilizing this technology. So I, I think that in the near future, we'll have a little more accurate um, data, at least on those uh, parameters. Um, and, and then the other ones, and this is just a few ones that we haven't identified, but when it comes to uh, the parity of the animal, that is, is usually really accurate, right? Uh, parity, uh, distortion, well, distortion event or stillborn event, because those are the only we're looking at Calvin, the disorders, those are usually fairly accurate. But as I mentioned before, the, the idea is just to, to identify those more um uh, scrutiny records or the more, you know, accurate, uh, it's not accurate, but, but more, more reliable uh, record that, and then see if there's association with those slides. Uh, but yeah, that I agree 100%. It's, it's a challenge. It's going to be there. And, you know, uh, well-managed and proactive farms will be able to implement this, these approaches. Other farms, you know, they will, it might not work just because of the data quality is not there. The data accuracy is not there. I want to ask you too about body condition score um, because we do kind of, we know that those high condition cows are going to be problematic. That's kind of been, that's, that's a lot older than this inflammation work is even, you know? Um, but there's so much confounding factors that go into body condition score, right? Like the cows that are over conditioned are over conditioned for a reason. Um, so, you know, they might be lower producing in, in the previous lactation or have a longer dry period, or, um, you know, there's a number of reasons why they may have gotten, uh, where they gotten. So, so what do you think? What, and, and I know there's still, we're still kind of teasing out the mechanisms of this to some extent, but, but in your mind, what do you think it is about high body condition score cows that causes them to be these problem cows, um, and high, infl high inflammatory cows when they, when they cap back in? Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a great question. And, and, you know, I think that we still, we just, uh, scratching the tip of the iceberg on, on, you know, the mechanism, as you say, and especially, you know, what are the previous conditions that actually might have caused that? And if those have any effect on, on the high inflammatory status that we have, we are seeing in the transition period. Um, you know, I think there's uh, good data now showing the association between the fat mobilization and inflammation, right? Those pro-inflammatory mo molecules that are, uh, uh, you know, stimulated or, or secreted 
um, uh, when when we have these fat mobilization uh, metabolites, right? Uh, so I think that that we know sort of we are understanding much better the mechanisms of um, of family, association fat mobilization inflammation, how those can cause each other, right? But then uh, if any of the previous event that actually got that animal to be over conditioned can affect the inflammation as well, right? Um, one thing that we are seeing even with these uh, approaches with the anti-inflammatory management, uh, we're doing one or two treatments. Now the people are doing only one treatment, uh, one day, one dose, and we're seeing effect on the animals up to 150 days in milk. So, you know, that is like the, the that salicylate or acetylsalicylic acid, that's well, we're gone, right? It's, it's, disappeared like long time ago. So why the animals still have effects, right? Um, so, and, and that is what at the beginning got our scratching our heads say, you know, it, it's, it's doing something on at the molecular level, right? It's doing something at, at the cellular level that is allowing those animals to be more developed or better suited to have a better performer, right? Um, and and um, these, uh, you know, uh, colleagues in the in the field, but I, I just want to point out uh, Dr. Rivero, Eduardo, uh, research about the disease and how an animal, a cow that has a disease in this lactation, their heifers will be negatively impaired in their lact So, you know, that association, that long-term association uh, is where, where, you know, as you were saying, like, these factors that are causing the cow to be over-conditioned most likely are related in some degree to the inflammation we're seeing, right? And, and which is the one that has the heavier, you know, the, the bigger um, uh, impact or the, the bigger um, uh, effect on that, right? Is, uh, you know, that the, the cow didn't get pregnant and therefore has a longer lactation and therefore got over-conditioned or is the cow had um, a, a longer gestation length, right? So what is that factor that, that caused the over score that could be also associated with uh, with high inflammation, right? So unfortunately, it's not, it's not a, a straight cut answer, right? Uh, a simple uh, is this. So it's, it's like what we have been always, um, it's not dealing the word I'm looking, but the, we always have been uh, finding out that it's, it's a multifactorial uh, cascade in events and there are so many correlations. And uh, that, you know, I think that for the applicable applicability or apply point of view, we just gotta find where are the, bigger players that could be easily identified in the field through common practices such as harm records and then develop an applied strategy that could be utilized to address the high risk for inflammation that these population may have. Yeah, it's kind of, I think, so when I did the studies that Barry and I did, we didn't see an immediate effect of salicylate or, or meloxicam. We didn't see, we saw a delayed effect um, and it was after most transition cow trials would have called it quits, right? Like, so you do a transition cow trial, you have some sort of intervention, either pre-fresh, post-fresh, then you monitor cows for, I don't know, 30, 60 days, something like that. And you either say, yes, there was an effect or no, there wasn't. And there's very few studies that have gone and done the whole lactation thing and done the long-term thing. And you talked about some of Eduardo's research where he's looking at intergenerational. And I know down at uh, Jeff Dahl down in Florida has done a lot of that as well with the heat stress. And 
it, uh, you know, a lot of times we say, you know, results varied, right? You know, this project, this study found this and this study found this. But sometimes I wonder if we just didn't monitor them for long enough, right? Like, um, and how much have we missed out on because, you know, for um, for budget reasons or or whatever reasons we have, we we don't get to monitor cows until the end of their lactation most of the time. And um, yeah, it's kind of, it's a whole, it's a, it's really fascinating to me to think about um, some of the long-term effects. And I think, and the other thing too, is to convince producers that something works, right? Because you expect, Hey, I started this new treatment or I started this new intervention and now I'm going to like see three pounds of milk uh, or whatever, five pounds of milk. But it's not going to, a lot of these things isn't going to be an immediate return, right? And so convincing people to stick with something because of the long-term impacts can be challenging in and of itself. So, Right, right. And, and you know, on those lines, it's, it's, uh, it's so dependable, or as you say, like resources, uh, funding, and so on. Um, and, and yeah, it, this uh, is so much is, is coming up. up to lie now that even you know in the past uh, I always put the example of the veterinary medicine field um, when I when I went to vet school and by the time I graduated we were trained to diagnose and treat the disease mostly right there was still some prevention uh, components of course but uh, most of our work was diagnosing and treating now we know that uh, especially in, in in the cattle dairy industry uh, field is now we know that if the animal goes sick we're already too late we're already too late because you know even if we treat the animal that animal already is going to have a, a impaired performance right so now it's now more than ever that we're understanding more and more of the pathophysiology of these conditions is that when we really have to focus our management on prevention and uh, and everything is is really uh, tailoring toward decreasing stress, decreasing inflammation, um, and and improving that. As you say, uh, you know, I, I agree. Back in 2015, 2000, I, I finished in 2017 my PhD. We still were in the highly monitoring approach when it comes to management of the, especially the, the fresh cow, right? We'll, you know, we'll be recommending to lock all the animals once a day, or, you know, after the morning milking and do. Pull on everybody. Yep. Right, exactly. Um, the diagnosis, uh, all, uh, and, 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 and now we know that we are adding an extra layer of stress. And, and I'm not aware of any study that, that look into, uh, uh, you know, more of those, uh, uh, you know, stress or inflammation on based on restraining, uh, you know, because there are several studies that have looked at the timing of uh, being, having the animals restrained associated with uh, laying time or intake time or so stuff like that. But I don't know if, if uh, there's a study that actually look into you know, an animal that is get restrained, even long-term, you know, uh, stress, for instance, in some measuring uh, 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 chronic stress, right? An animal that get locked every day for the first, uh, you know, three weeks after calving, compared to an animal did not, those animals have more or less stress and it does, that has an effect on, on fertility. Just to give an example, in, in the aspirin trials uh, that we published back in 2020, we found an association, well, not an association, yeah. So the animals that 
become ill in the first 60 days in milk, they have a much higher um, cortisol concentration 24 and 36 hours after cavity. And, you know, 24 and 36 hours after cavity, those animals are healthy. There's nothing wrong with those animals. But the cortisol levels were way higher compared to the animals that remain healthy, right? So, you know, if you get a response, a higher res cortisol response on the animals that you're restraining, more likely those animals are going to be in a higher risk to, to become ill, right? Um, and linking to that now is why we are starting to rely more and more in technology, right? So these uh, activity monitors uh, that now are getting more and more accurate, assessing rumination and, uh, you know, number of steps, uh, time laying down and so on, that could be uh, utilized as, you know, not as a solely diagnostic, uh, solely diagnostic tool, but at least a, as a flagging tool that say, okay, this animal is a little off. Let's take a look at it. Instead of locking all the animals, right, and doing all, uh, uh, subjecting all those animals to that uh, restraining stress um, or handling stress unnecessary in, in, in most of the cases, right? Can we talk for a minute? Because, you, you, you know, I love how you said that, that by the time we're treating, by the time an animal is sick, we're too late. Um, so when we're thinking about the transition period and inflammation and management or modulation of inflammation, what are some of the steps we should be taking? Treatments aside, anti-inflammatories aside, what are some of the practical take-home messages that we can be sending to producers about making sure um, that they are modulating inflammation in their transition cows? That's a great question, um, Gil. And, and we actually were starting a study a couple of years ago that um, we, we ran out of funds and we just were waiting to get more funds to, to keep going, but uh, where we were looking at into different preparatory management practices that could be associated with high inflammation across farms. And um, Dr. Overton's lab actually uh, got ahead of us and they published yep. a really nice... <laughs> You know, uh, uh, two papers uh, uh, last year, I believe, uh, where they actually look into that. And it's, it's really, uh, it's a great study. I, I actually use it for many presentations now. Um, but uh, they, they actually found associations, uh, you know, high inflammation on association uh, or on practices that we actually already were not recommending, right? High stocking density, commingling first lactations with, with uh, or heifers with, with multiple scouts in the prepartum. Um, you know, all those common um, management practices that we have been uh, uh, training employees and, and, uh, and educating producers about that, that most of them remain uh, true when it comes to inflammation as well. Um, so, you know, uh, stocking density, especially when it comes to feed bank availability, uh, you know, the feed bank, ensuring those 30 inches per animal, um, uh, trying to not commingle heifers with multiple, so at least have a, a lower stocking density when we commingle those animals. Um, you know, uh, there's not much research on this, but, but um, there's definitely uh, a strong association with personal management and training, right? And, and personnel that, that roughly manage the animals, that's going to add stress uh, and, 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 uh, and pain in some cases uh, to the animals, right? Um, Well-trained animals when it comes to assisting histocic cavities, right? So another study that, that is sort of in the back burner that one day I would like to do is a, a personnel that is well-trained assists a cow and a personnel that is not trained assists a cow. Does that cow has high inflammation compared to the, uh, the cow that was assisted by a well-trained 
personnel or, or you know, farm, uh, oh, farm worker. Fascinating. You know, so I'm sure there is a, a strong association there. Um, and, and something is, is like um, when we think about uh, anything that uh, could stress the animal when it comes to uh, diet availability, uh, water availability, space availability, right? All those factors um, are key to, to keep the uh, low inflammation uh, in this group of animals. And, and as you say, uh, anti-inflammatory treatment aside, right? It's just like management way, nutrition, um, uh, you know, nutrition, the basic of nutrition, but I always say more that more important than the actual diet composition, which is important, is the diet availability. Uh, sometimes I go to farms and we do a lot of, of this extension consulting work. Uh, I go to farms and, and you know, they, they, they had uh, their nutritionist working the diet and say, we look at everything. It looks perfect. And I look at it and say, it looks amazing. You know, maybe a little thing here and there. But then I go there and they have 120% stocking density. And they have, you know, multiple scale with heifer, and the heifers are the one that become sick and they're not getting pregnant and yada, yada, yada. Uh, and say, guys, so here the, the diet composition is not the issues. The animals just don't, don't have the access to the diet, right? Um, so, so, you know, some um, basic stuff like that uh, sometimes can go a uh, long way when it comes to, to inflammation and overall performance of the animal as well. I really agree with everything you just said, especially when it comes to stocking density. I think that's something that gets overlooked so often with, especially with dry cows and pre-fresh cows is stocking density in the pack or the freestall, but also at the feed bunk too. And I really appreciate your comments about making sure that feed's available and accessible um, and being pushed up and all this other stuff, because it seems like on a lot of farms, the dry cows are kind of you know, well, we're really focusing on pushing up feed in the lactating barn and, but the dry cow barns out there. So we might, you know, be pushing up feed every hour, every two hours in the lactating barn and dry cows, it's, you know, a couple times a day. And, um, I think that's a huge missed opportunity on a lot of farms is like you said, those, the stocking density and feed availability. And, and a lot of times too, I know we have in Iowa, we have a lot of farms that are, that are planning on putting in up, upgrading their transition cow facilities and understand that that is that transition cow facilities are a very important part of good transition cow management. But when you look at, you know, money's tight, right. And you can build a new freestyle barn or you can build a new calf barn or you can't build anything. A lot of times uh, the dry cow facilities kind of make their way down um, uh, relative to some of the other priorities that we have. So um, really appreciate those comments. The other thing I'd add to your list, and I guess as a veterinarian, I'm, I'm uh, curious about your perspective too, but uh, you talked about, you know, um, pulling calves and dystocia and how big of an impact that that can have. So, um, you know, a lot of times in the nutrition world, it seems like we really focus on the pre-fresh diet and the post-fresh diet and making sure those are right. And even our, you know, pre-fresh and post-fresh management, but there's this entire, huge event that happens in the middle of the transition period um, that a lot of times we kind of scoot over. So when it comes to maternity management, um, what are some of the best practices that you see for, for managing maternity and what are, what are good farms doing right with maternity? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And, and, and I, I agree, Gail, that it's, it's quite often forgotten. Um, but I mean, the, mes, the, the best management practices is the monitoring. I think that that is a key component. And, and also uh, training the personnel to, to know what to look for. 
you know, as, as one of the benchmarks that we have when it comes to maternity management is to monitor the close-up pain uh, at least once an hour, right? Walk those pains and look for those imminent signs of parturition um, and, 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 you know, train the personnel to know what to look for, right? Uh, when we're looking at some discharge through the vulva, swallowing the vulva, uh, leaking, uh, you know, leakage of colostrum and uh, all those, those, uh, those um, early factors that, that will let the, the employee know that the animal is getting close to, to cabin. And, and when, the, when the animal gets started in the stage two, which is the labor, uh, is monitoring that time in labor, right? Because that is going to tell you, it's going to tell the, the employee when they need to assess the animal. Because we don't want to go too soon because that could cause excessive and unnecessary trauma on that birth canal. Uh, but we we don't want to go too late because that is going to cause you know uh, it could cause the death of that calf as well. Um, so and you know when we do these training, we do a lot of these trainings with the personnel uh, related to you know proper best management practices uh, uh, for the maternity operation. Um, it's a matter of monitoring that and, and basically what they want to look for is that every 15 to 20 minutes, you want to see some sort of progress on that uh, parturition process. Um, and then, uh, you know, after 70 minutes, if there's no progress, uh, they, they need to inspect that animal. They need to put in the in the head shell. They need to uh, properly clean that um, the, the perineal area. Um, and then, uh, you know, uh, uh, put on their uh, PPE, the protective personal equipment, and then uh, inspect that animal, do a, a vaginal palpation and, and, you know, see what, what is going on there. Um, but um, but I think that you know the key piece. Is if I have to put to, to select one key key uh, piece of practice is is monitoring, right? It's the frequency of monitoring and also knowing what to look for. Uh, and then when we need, to, you know, we know what to look for uh, and when to assist or or check that animal, assess that animal. Uh, you know that is also key for the time component, timely assisting, not too late, not too early, not too late, just the right time. Yeah, thank you for those comments. We did. I mean, we've been talking for almost forty minutes, um, and you shared before the beginning, you shared your three to five areas of expertise and we've only hit about one of them. So, (laughs) um, we ask all of our, we ask all of our, our guests to share three to five areas of expertise. You listed transition cow management, which we've spent a lot of time talking about, um, but also reproductive performance and cow health. And I think cow health is something that's probably tied in the whole time. So maybe we've, maybe we've hit two of these, but, um, before we kind of start wrapping up and, what are you looking at with reproductive performance? What do you think is the bottleneck on a lot of herds? What's kind of the new frontier when it comes to, to reproductive management? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And, and, you know, what I have learned through the years is that um, one of the, the most common uh, issues that, that uh, they are on reproductive management is uh, they're, they're very basic. They, they don't they don't go back to the you know the actual protocol or changing the protocol and and you know uh, uh, starting these these highly advanced uh, protocols that in research field on the research world they work really good. But when you bring it to the real life scenario, there are going to be you know some factors that must be in place in order to actually make it work, right? Um, so one thing that that I quite often see is that they get too complicated when they can have the same result with a much more simplistic approach, uh, but well managed. 
Uh, I think that sometimes I see uh, producers that, you know, just because they want to go the extra mile, which is, that's great. And I really um, enjoy uh, interacting with, with producers with that personality of that approach. Uh, but sometimes, you know, that extra mile can get you to overcommit or uh, overseeing some of the details on those complex protocols. Um, so, you know, they can have the same result, especially when you look at the overall form uh, features when it comes to labor availability, um, you know, personal training, that's a huge one. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, a structure or infrastructure like facilities, right? When you think about these protocols, some of them, they, they're like nine shots, right? And, and then you had to find those animals like one or twice a week to give the shots and you had to restrain those animals and, and, and the whole thing, right? Um, and, and think about that. You get one of those shots wrong and that animal's not going to be set for, you know, it's not going to be ovulating when you want it. Right. So one out of nine that you miss and that the whole thing falls, falls down. Right. Um, so I think that that is, is one thing, at least in, in the field experience that I have seen that, um, sometime I think that keep it the simpler you can keep it for your management for, for your farm where your resources that you have labor infrastructure time commitment um the better the simpler you can have it the better and 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 the result is they're really good as well it's not that um you know they're they're, they're not that much different between a much more complex uh you know five percent uh or you know usually there's not much different than five seven percent between one protocol and another so you know, sometimes that 5% doesn't worth to uh, go through all this adaptation period that is going to be accompanied or, or come with some, some losses for, you know, probably a couple months or if not, uh, you know, up to three or six months until they actually get it, um, get it going uh, and they actually get it to work. Right? Um but yeah, I will say that, and the one thing that I have uh, seen a lot, and, and perhaps it's because of my area of, of expertise, is that a lot of the reproductive performance issues that I have seen and or I help producers with, they're related to transition cow management issues. Uh, you know, we quite often, uh, have, quite often I had a call about I'm struggling with conception rate at first service, um, you know, or my first and second lactation cows, first service and second service are, are low, I cannot get those higher. And, you know, a really typical scenario of poor transition management and, and, and you know, uh, just addressing those, those components. We, we have actually, um, you know, many farms that we have helped and, and, the biggest challenge that we have sometimes that addressing some of those issues, as you say, like stocking density is a common one, they're, they're costly, right? They're highly expensive. So how can you economically and uh, applicably or, or, you know, being applied, help the producer to, to, to get, uh, you know, even better to what they are without investing thousands of dollars? Uh, and, you know, there are ways around, there, there are ways such as moving animals, certain group of animals sooner to the milking uh, parlor, the animals that are, you know, high performance animals that, that are doing really good moving sooner and keeping the, the trouble animals a little longer just to have the stocking density lower. Now, there are different, dividing the pen with gates. There are a few things that, you know, that can be implemented that if you get creative, you, you can get there without spending those, you know, thousands of thousands of dollars. Uh, but, you know, that's the biggest challenge. There's some addressing of some of these uh, 
sometimes known, because sometimes the producers know that, that they have overstocking density issues or high stocking density issues, it's just not feasible, right? It's just not feasible, and we have to to try to to help them in in an, through another matter, you know, a different ways. Um, but but yeah, that's that's usually at least in my experience, in my field experience, um, common issues that I, that I've seen. And when it comes to research, our research is really based on this modulating inflammation. What are the benefits that we can see? on reproductive performance. Uh, it's, it's not really into the developing new, uh, you know, uh, synchronization protocols or anything on those lines. It's more related to the physiology of inflammation, how that can affect uh, fertility and how our uh, different um, treatment approaches uh, uh, could affect uh, reproductive performance. All right, well, thanks for sharing. Anything else before we uh, move into our our three questions. Anything else you that we think we missed in our discussion today, or? Uh, no, I think that, that we we covered you know most of the the current issues or the common uh, concepts on, on this area. I, I feel that this is is you know is uh, is an area that we can have uh, twenty podcasts on it. Yeah, uh, no so it, it's, you know sometimes it's hard to 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 concise and and, and summarize the information, but I think that is that is a good snapshot of of uh, what I believe are the the most uh, important areas of, of research needed in and and also the more. Um, uh, applicable knowledge to to be utilized by by the producers in this area so it's time for our famous three we want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible dsm providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production Xzealot, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia it's uncomplicated excellence SmaxTech. Get insights from inside your cows with SmaxTech for higher herd health and profitability. R-Yeast 40, ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. Maximize profitability and herd health with early detection in animal health, reproduction, calving, and feeding. The most advanced bolus technology and professional support from agricultural experts makes this possible. SmaxTech, the health system that future-proofs your operation. Well, thank you. With that, uh, we're going to move into our three questions, and uh, I believe you know what's coming. Um, so the first question that we ask all of our guests is, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? That's a, it's a great question. Um, I will say one of the, the main resources that I look for when I want to get uh, up-to-date, uh, unbiased research information is the Journal of Dairy Science. Uh, that is one of the main ones I'll go just for that research component. Uh, and then the um, Howard Derryman um, magazine will be the, the other more applied uh, you know, a sort of uh, source of information. The other one that I, if I can put one more out there is the Veterinary of North America um, uh, sort of uh, 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 sections or, or is, is, um, the, sorry, the editions. Um, that, uh, that is another one that, that I often look, especially when they had the, the new issues that, that come out um, for up-to-date more veterinary uh um, medicine information uh, when it comes to dairy uh, science as well. 
All right. So our second question is, what is your favorite non-dairy related book or resource? That's a good question. Non-dairy re related book. Um, I don't know if I have an actual book, but uh, I read a lot about um, inflammation related to diet uh, in, in human medicine. Um, uh, especially when you think about the dairy cow and the ketosis uh, matter related to nutrition. And, and in human medicine, uh, the nutrition side, uh, there's this uh, boom a uh, couple of years, uh, recent uh, interest about the ketogenic diet. Um, and I have been becoming more um, related to that because uh, my 50 month old daughter um she's in that diet due to, to a medical condition and i myself she's as commitment i have been uh in the diet for almost seven months um but it's really interesting to me to read about that because um it's something that on the dairy cow we have been trying to avoid for many many years but it it not might be that much of the case. And, and, you know, if, if Lance Bunger will be in this podcast, he will be, you know, right on there saying, uh, I agree with that. Right. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of information that, you know, either translate or can be utilized as a proof, uh, you know, sort of research concepts for, for the dairy industry when it comes to nutrition and human medicine, although they definitely different physiological, uh, you know, mechanism, but, but it's a lot of concept that, that they, they are worth uh, looking into, um, you know, when it comes to maybe translating to, to the dairy management. Interesting. Um, that's a new one that nobody's brought up yet. So congratulations. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our last question that we ask all of our guests is, uh, what do you think sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not successful? Oh, that's a good question. Um, and I mean, and I think there's so many prof uh, different levels or different type of professionals, right? Because uh, I will say that a, a, a proactive um, and a, a dairy producer that will be a dairy professional in my in my book as well, right? Uh, a professor also will be a dairy science professor will be a, um, a, a professional as well, a dairy professional as well. Um, I think that what 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 I have seen and, and again, perhaps I'm more in the new we um population here right I only has been as a, a faculty for uh, five years uh, but what i have seen uh, in my career that is a little longer than five years uh is that um basically is the, the thinking out of the box and and it's just looking at, at, at challenging perhaps the the established concepts right so those things that we believe that they are they are the the you know the bible for for not finding a better word um that they you know don't just set for that just try to challenge this concept and do that uh, out of the uh, out of the both thinking on uh you know new ideas and a new um uh, well, in, in my case, it would be new research, but it could be new management strategies. Um, I just, I always bring these these concepts along that some of the most meaningful research studies that I have done in my career, they, uh, you know, some of those those ideas came out from from producers suggesting, "Hey, why you don't do this?" Right? Uh, and and you know, I always listen to to 
to the producers that I interact with, with because they are the ones that are 24-7 with the animals. We, you know, due to our profession, we spend so much time in front of these computers, right, that sometimes we lose that connection with the daily, you know, routine of, of uh, dairy farming. Um, so I think that those, uh, you know, those things, and, and, and also, uh, I, I, at least when it comes to, um, to uh, dairy farming and, and farm management, uh, I think that one thing that I have found is, is just really set them for success, is just keep it simple. Uh, don't try to, to get these this complex uh, strategies or, or um, you know, just get uh, into the, the nitty gritty of some things. And sometimes the simple management with, with attention to details, simple and attention to details get farther than, you know, implementing these, uh, you know, highly complex new technologies or, or uh, you know, strategies. Um, so I'll, I think I'm going to stop there because I, I can go on, on and on, but, but I think those would be some of the, the main things that I have seen in my short career that, that set people uh, apart when it comes to success. I'd agree with all of that. I think that's very well said. All right, Adrian, before I let you go, is there anywhere that anybody can find more information about you and what you're working on and stay up to date with, uh, with what you got? We've already established it's not LinkedIn. So uh, <laughs> where can folks go if they want to stay in touch with, with what you're doing? Yeah, you stole that last phrase from my mouth. I was just going to say <laughs> that. Uh, yeah, no LinkedIn. Uh, so the um, College of Agricultural Science at Penn State College of Agricultural Sciences uh, webpage and the Veterinary and Biomedical Science Department, uh, that is where my information, my more up-to-date information will be. Uh, at. So my email, my contact information, uh, my latest research. Um, uh, the other thing, uh, you know, every, any, everybody can reach out to me through email. Uh, that is usually the best uh, approach. Uh, and it's axb779 at psu from Penn State University dot uh, edu. So um, always happy to, uh, to interact with producers or colleagues about uh, any research or or, or dairy management uh, topics. Uh, so I uh, encourage everybody to reach out. I'm happy to 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 help with anything. So well, thank you very much. Appreciate you taking the time to talk with us this afternoon or this morning or whenever people are listening to this. And uh, uh, appreciate you taking the time. It was a really great discussion today. Thank you, Gail, and and the podcast for the invitation. That was, that was a great uh, great program. Thanks.